We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. You're tuned in live to The Andrew Lawton Show, Monday, October 24th, 2022. Day 8 of the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings in Ottawa. And as we have talked about last week and two weeks ago on the show, we're going to keep following this, talking about things that are happening in the hearing room and also things that are happening outside the hearing room that have a great deal of relevance on what are what's happening there. And I want to just start right out of the gate on this. There was a, a fascinating development today where Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones who last week uh, said, Ford said specifically, that he wasn't testifying before the Public Order Emergency Commission because he hadn't been asked. Well, this week, the commission has said, we've asked you numerous times and you have not responded or you have declined. So now the commission has issued Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones a legal summons to compel them to appear before the commission hearings as witnesses. Now, you may think, okay, that's a little bit of a strange development for a guy that just said he wasn't there because he hadn't been asked. But now Ford has applied for judicial review to stop himself from having to appear. He says it violates parliamentary privilege. So well, my question here, why on earth does Doug Ford not want to testify? Here's a guy who by his own admission said he's a supporter of the Emergencies Act being used. He said he was standing shoulder to shoulder with Justin Trudeau and his buddy Christian Freeland and they were all working together and this was important and he was taking a stand against the uh, terrible truckers by supporting the Emergencies Act. Why does he not want to go under oath and talk about that? If he thinks it was so necessary, is it maybe because last week we learned that uh, the federal government was trash-talking him behind his back, Justin Trudeau and Jim Watson weren't being as buddy-buddy with him as he was with them? Or is it because he knows that the government didn't really have the basis to do it? As we're hearing from countless witnesses that have been testifying before this commission over the last eight days. I'm going to bring into the discussion in just a moment's time Keith Wilson, who is a lawyer extraordinary, King's Counsel, the first King's Counsel I've ever Ever met because he was the first to change from the QC that he had had for uh, so many years. But before I bring in Keith, I just want to play one of the clips that has been uh, coming out of, of the many things today we've learned from interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell. And one of them, I think, is becoming the key theme here. When we learned that police had a plan, Police had a plan to deal with what was happening that didn't involve the Emergencies Act. We were told this last week by police representatives, and we were told it again today by Interim Chief Bell. Oh, maybe we don't have that clip. All right, sorry about that. We'll, uh, we'll get to that clip a little bit later on in the show. I've oversold, but you know what? The best way I can fix this is by bringing Keith Wilson on now. He is He's going to save any show before it goes off the rails. Keith, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. 
So uh, let me start first off with this business with Doug Ford here. Why on earth is it that uh, the premier would have to be summonsed to appear when just last week he was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm all for appearing. I'm all for coming. They just haven't asked yet. Well, he's given the answer with the judicial review you mentioned that uh, he doesn't want to testify. And uh, that, of course, raises some interesting questions. What is he worried that he's going to be asked? What is he worried that he might have to answer? Um, this is uh, very surprising, even to me, who, uh, as you can imagine, with all the things I've been through, I've got a pretty high threshold for surprise. And this one trips it uh, handily. Yeah, I mean, I would say that as far as uh, people that we could benefit from hearing from here, the Ontario government would be a fascinating one because they this was the government that had to grapple with the uh, Ambassador Bridge blockade, and it's the government that managed to clear up that blockade without the Emergencies Act, using regular policing powers just in a matter of about 48 hours. So I, I actually think hearing from Premier Ford about why you couldn't just apply what you did there to Ottawa would be a fascinating revelation for the commission well and for all of us i mean what's what's striking is compare it to something else the the premier ford's position as we now have learned in the last number of hours which is compare it to the position of the prime minister doug ford was not a decision maker with respect to the invocation of the emergencies act the prime minister was and he's expressed a willingness to, to testify is not requiring to be subpoenaed. He's coming under his own volition. I think he realized he had no choice, but you know why Premier Ford would do this to himself. He's likely to lose his judicial review just because the case law is so clear. Um, he's not precluded from invoking a privilege when he's asked a question, if the question triggers privilege. So this is, um, bad political strategy in my view he would have been better off to just say yeah i'm happy to come and share whatever information i have and help canadians get to the bottom of this it's a very important inquiry and happy to be here instead he's just he's just embroiled himself in a self-imposed controversy when we talk about the witnesses that are slated to appear, we've got members of the convoy's board, we've got uh, more police representatives, we've got some bureaucrats from all number of federal departments and intelligence agencies, we've got federal cabinet ministers. I, I know that this is fluid and more witnesses could be added here. We also have that statutory uh, cutoff where the report has to be tabled by, by February. And, and I'm wondering, is it possible to cast too wide a net here? And, and bring in more people than are needed for the commissioner to make the decision? Or is your view that this witness list is actually so light that key details are being missed? Well, the, you're right that it's a, it's a dynamic process. The witness list that everyone's seen was the first preliminary witness list. There will be a new witness list coming out soon, um, and it will have uh, a lot more names on it. And that's the nature of this process. Um, we've been working with the commission's lawyers on on uh, expanding the number of witnesses that will speak on behalf of the Freedom Convoy protesters. Uh, so it is, it, and and the other thing that's happening here is, which is really unusual for lawyers anyway, is that normally before you go into something like this, all the documents are disclosed and you have a chance to review them. We're getting new documents disclosed every day, and the last count we had, we were. Uh, we were over 15,000 records, over 20,000, well over 20,000 pages of documents. So 
Um, the, the, the paper evidence just keeps coming in by the day that depending on our review of it and what we find and other parties finds then triggers a request. So for example, one of the things that, that our group and a number of other lawyers representing other groups made a formal application, uh, last week, late last week to have the commissioner issue a subpoena to the head of the CBC to testify because one of the focuses in the order and counsel for this public inquiry is to examine misinformation and disinformation. And given that, we couldn't understand why the head of the CBC wasn't at the top of the witness list. So um, we know that Mendocino and other ministers have routinely referred to fake news stories as a basis of their decision-making. So this uh, inquiry has been fascinating since the first day. As you know, we're on day eight of 38 days of of, of evidence. We still have at least 30 days to go, assuming we don't start sitting Saturdays. And I think we're going to start sitting the hearing on Saturdays very soon. Just on a, on a, this is not a question that's coming from anywhere, but my own mind here. Is there a mechanism at all to delay the production of the report? If for some reason they need more time for hearings, they need more witnesses, more time to put it all together, or is that a complete no-go under the statute? Well, the what's the statute? The statute simple it says that you have to table your report before the legislatures of the provinces uh, and the Parliament of Canada and the Senate within 365 days of the revocation of the invocation. Okay, so that puts us into February next year. As to whether or not the commissioner decides, so he's got two blocks of time left: hearing time and then review and writing time. He may decide to chop a week or two off of his his writing time for him and his commission staff and and extend the hearing um the only other i've been asked this question many times the only other situation would be if the parliament and the senate decide to amend the emergencies act to modify section 63 and change it from 365 days to some other number so um, uh, we can all guess at what the mechanics of that might be. But the commissioner is uh, running a very tight ship. Uh, we put in a request each day by five o'clock for the witnesses. We're going to be cross-examining three days from now. And that's the rule we do every day. We're working seven days a week, uh, many, many hours a day and night. Um, and we have to identify all of the documents that we're going to put to the witness in cross. So we would have identified uh, interim chief bell, what I guess on Friday of last week. Um, and then we, so we may say we need an hour and a half to cross examine, uh, interim chief bell. And then the commissioner will say you get 15 minutes or you get 10 minutes or you get 20 minutes. So that's how it works for all the parties. And, uh, and he's got a stop clock up there. As you probably noticed, he'll sometimes let you run over a little bit, but, uh, he's running a pretty tight ship and, um, uh, you know, right now we're assuming we're going to finish on time and, but we're very much alive to the fact that in the next couple of weeks, we'll probably be sitting on Saturdays and holding the hearing on Saturdays as well as going till eight and nine o'clock each night. I want to play a very brief clip here from uh, today. This is Brendan Miller representing uh, Freedom Corp uh, during his cross-examination of uh, Interim Chief Bell earlier today, talking about this idea of there being a plan by police without the Emergencies Act. But last question, just because uh, I just want to get this clear. But so you're saying that there was existing laws that you could have done the same thing under. Is that right? 
we had a plan. We were going to execute a plan. Thank you. Very clear question. You had existing laws. The interim chief says there was a plan. We, we had a plan. Uh, you know, when, when these sorts of revelations came out last week, there was a part of me that wondered if, you know, in very dramatic Hollywood-like fashion, Brendan Miller could just say, I rest my case, nothing further, and, and go home. Because really, that seems to be inherently, inherently disqualifying for the Emergencies Act the way the act is written. Well, when Brendan... Uh, and, you know, we're thrilled to have him leading our team and being the lead barrister. Uh, that was to be my job. But after I assessed Brendan's skills and the role that I'm taking in this inquiry and the fact that I'm likely to testify, it simply wasn't proper to have me be the barrister. Um, but Brendan's doing a terrific job. But when he did his opening statement, you'll recall, Andrew, that he was very straightforward and he laid out, here's the four things that you that that, that the government has to establish you know, that there was acts of sabotage or, or, or espionage. There will be no evidence of espionage. There will be uh, that they have to establish that there was threats of serious violence against persons and property. There will be no evidence. And he went through the list in his opening statement. He reframed his opening statement into cross-examination questions when he interviewed the head of the OPP's intelligence unit. Um, and he answered each one of them, you know, in the negative. There, what, there, there is no evidence of serious violence against property. There was no evidence of insurrection. There was no evidence of, of, uh, of terrorist activity, all of these requirements. So after that cross-examination last week of the head of the OPP's intelligence uh, group, we, we, we did kind of joke, well, you know, time to pack our bags and head home to our families. But of course, we got to see this thing out and we will. Because it's not just the legal test that's at issue here, it's the narrative. And I'm really concerned about this element of misinformation, disinformation, because in my view, having cross-examined all the various government experts um, and officials on the Peckford case with respect to the justifications for the mandates and the vaccine approval process and all of these other issues, I know where the disinformation is. It's, it's, it's from the government. And so there's there's other narratives that need to be explored and exposed, and it's going to continue to be a fascinating inquiry, in my view. Uh, you mentioned the the Peckford case. You and I have, have spoken about this in the past, and, and I covered the uh, hearing that took place on the federal government's application to dismiss the whole thing as moot, because in their words, the mandates were gone. You don't need to be vaccinated to get on a plane. Case closed. And it was quite disheartening the other day when the federal court justice, the associate chief justice, uh, approved that. She granted that motion. She said this is moot. Reasons have not yet been published here. But uh, even though the federal government, in its own language, has said this was a temporary suspension, they've managed to uh, essentially convince the federal court of this country that it's not worth hearing whether that mandate was unconstitutional to begin with. Now, I know uh, Premier Peckford, Maxime Bernier, uh, some of the other uh, applicants as well, I believe, have, have said they're going to appeal this. But I was wondering if you could explain, in the absence of decisions, why you think that went the way it did, in the absence of reasons, rather. Well, I mean, I hate to be cynical, but I have no choice given what I've seen. And it's just clear to me when you look at the decisions of our courts at the provincial level and the federal level, they've just been been um, unwilling, lacking the judicial courage, I believe, to do the hard analysis. Um, I, I don't feel that 
uh, you know, there's the, the image of lady justice with the scales of justice and the blindfold, the blindfolds probably, you know, down over her nose right now is how I'm feeling. And, um, uh, they're just, when you look at the legal test for whether or not to grant a mootness motion, you know, when there's a serious constitutional issue at play is one of the reasons not to strike out a case for mootness. And we have clear, uncontroverted evidence that over 6 million Canadians' fundamental right of mobility under Section 6 of the Charter were grossly violated, resulting in them being unable to be at the side of dying loved ones, attend funerals, be there for their first grandchild, to help a loved one be discharged and recover from hospital, to go to, to weddings and other important celebrations, that this was a violation of charter rights on a scale that has never occurred in our history and is almost unimaginable, but it happened. And for the court to say, well, you know, nothing to see here. They, uh, they suspended those travel mandates. Now move along, everyone, is, uh, is not helpful. Um, the courts, as I said to the judge in my oral argument, provide a fundamental role in a modern democracy and a civil society. They're the third leg of the stool. We have the legislative branch of government, we have the executive branch of government, and we have the judicial branch of government. And they're to perform checks and balances. And what's happened with this mootness ruling is the federal court is checked out. And that doesn't make the stool more stable. I, I'm, I've remarked on this on the program in the past, but when in 2019 the Leaders' Debates Commission banned True North and Rebel from covering the debate, we filed a, a case for an injunction, we won, and our longer-term case was dismissed as moot. And then in 2021, the Leaders' Debates Commission does the exact same thing with Rebel. Rebel goes and files another case, wins again. So as a matter of practicality, when there is a, a significant risk that something like this is going to happen again, I think it should be heard. But as you've mentioned, even if we knew that the mandates were done forever, which I, I wish we could take for granted, but we can't, this was such a significant breach of Canadians' rights that it should absolutely have a declaration on record that it was unconstitutional. And, and I, I hope that appeal is successful, Keith. I, I do. Just going back very briefly before we let you go to the, the Public Order Emergency Commission, uh, this week we're hearing a, a bit more from police. I just got the, the list of expected witnesses for tomorrow. We've got Russell Lucas from the Ottawa Police Service, Marcel Baudin from the OPP, Robert Drummond from the Ottawa Police Service. Are we expecting more of what we've been hearing? Or do you think that from law enforcement, there's still a little bit that could come out that might qualify as a bombshell or a smoking gun to use the popular lingo? Uh, there could be some bombshells in the sense of contradicting uh, early test earlier testimony from some of the other police officials. But I think we're going to see more of the same. You know that I was, um, <clears throat> along with Tom Morazzo and Eva, Eva Chipiak, we were the ones that it, there's been a lot of evidence about the negotiations that occurred at City Hall. And we were the ones in the room. And um, um, we were, <laughs> we, we just about had a big success in the early days at Sussex and Rideau, which was a really tough intersection uh, to deal with. Um, given the nature of the people who are protesting there. And then we negotiated with the help of uh, former chief of staff to Premier Ford, uh, Dean French, the umbrella deal to actually de-escalate the entire thing just before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And 
one of the things that's occurring to us sitting there as Eva and I and Tom are listening to this testimony in real time is that, you know, we know exactly now why these deals didn't ultimately be successfully implemented. It was due completely to police incompetence. Mm -hmm. Like they just lacked the basic communication competency to place the police in the right places and remove them from other places to allow the deal to be implemented. We were constantly blocked by the police and seeing their handwritten notes from the chief's meetings about knowing about the deal and the instructions and their frustration with the communication not getting through. It's just remarkable in a very disturbing way, the level of incompetency of the police that's been revealed. And I think, well, I'm pretty confident you're going to see even more to come. And this is many things, but a national emergency, it is not. Uh, it's a national embarrassment. Keith Wilson, I know you are uh, plugging away daily in Ottawa, and we'll be sure to have you back as long as uh, as long as you can uh, spare some time outside of the hearing room. And also your colleague, Eva Chipiuk, is welcome back anytime. Thanks so much, sir. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That was Keith Wilson, the eminent barrister representing uh, a lot of the members of the convoy protest, although, as you just heard earlier, not testifying or not appearing as a counsel of record because he may be appearing as a witness instead, which I very, very much look forward to if that happens, as we expect it may in the weeks ahead here. The, the question I asked at the beginning is, what on earth is Doug Ford afraid of? Because we've had, I mean, there are low-level bureaucrats that are testifying. We've had city counselors. We've had Ottawa business representatives. We've had a public servant that didn't like the sounds of horns honking uh, that was testifying. Why is Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who has been, to my knowledge, the only premier to be enthusiastically in favor of the Emergencies Act, why is he willing to go to court to protect himself from having to appear, to defend a piece of legislation that he supports? That is going to be the key question here. Now, th this, as I mentioned, it has become a bit of a subplot taking place outside of the commission. But Doug Ford initially last week said, oh, no, they haven't asked me. That's why I'm there. Uh, leaving the implication that he would go if they were to ask him. So the commission, and I don't know what date, said, okay, well, let's ask him. They asked him. They asked him. And he has not appeared in that time. And I want to pull up the exact wording that the uh, commission used in its letter here, because I think it's actually quite important. And I've like, I just like had it like five tabs ago. So I'll pull that up in a second. But what the commission said in its letter was that we've asked you and now we're issuing a summons. And that I think was so key. So they said, we asked you and you said no. So this means that Doug Ford was saying something that was patently untrue, or maybe this all was just a little misunderstanding that took place in the days since. But one thing is for sure, he doesn't want to go, and I don't know why that is. If you have nothing to hide, you shouldn't be afraid to go under oath and defend this thing. 
And as an Ontario voter, and by the way, an Ontario citizen who stood as a candidate for Doug Ford's progressive conservatives in 2018, it is absolutely shameful, shameful that this man who calls himself a premier for the people is standing up and standing by his own words, shoulder to shoulder with Justin Trudeau on this heavy handed crackdown that suspended civil liberties all done to protect the narrative around a mandate that in and of itself suspended people's rights. And Doug Ford decides that this is how he wants to score his brownie points with Justin Trudeau, by standing shoulder to shoulder. It is absolutely shameful and it's despicable that he is now too afraid to take a stand before the Public Order Emergency Commission under oath and defend why it is exactly that Ontario supported that. When Ontario didn't need it, to deal with the uh, Windsor blockade, which was widely regarded as being far more disruptive than anything happening in Ottawa. I want to just, before we close things out here, talk about a few more of the updates that have come out of the commission today. Uh, obviously, there have been a number, a number of revelations from interim police chief Steve Bell, who we just learned the other day is not going to be the permanent police chief. So Ottawa has hired someone else. But I, I want to play one clip here where Steve Bell says that he had no knowledge of how police, how his police officers were dealing with the arrests of protesters. And because Ottawa police and the OPP, all of the stakeholders involved, they were doing this catch and release type thing just to get people out of the core. But listen to Steve Bell say, well, you know, all of a sudden we had a plan. We knew what were going on, but on this, oh, I, I had no idea what was happening. So you're going to hear evidence eventually um, from some of the protesters uh, when they eventually testify. Uh, that some of the ones that were arrested upon their release, they were essentially kidnapped by OPS officers, driven out of town in the middle of February winter by OPS officers, and left in various rural areas and parking lots outside of town with no shelter or resources. Are you aware of that? No, because I don't know the specifics of what they're, what they're speaking about. What I do know is that we, as part of our planning, uh, and Inspector Lucas tomorrow will be able to provide more details, but we did have remote pro arrest processing sites, not in rural Ottawa, in the south end of Ottawa, in a um, residential mixed commercial area where they were protest and then uh, released to be able to find um, transportation to wherever they needed to go, which is a common, uh, which is common with the police. Right. So one of the areas there was several, as I understand. One of them was a municipal parking lot where the trucks were being towed to. That's correct. That's right. in the south end. Right. And that parking lot doesn't have a building you drop them off at. It doesn't have a phone. It doesn't have any of that, does it? So I, I don't know what the logistics at the building were. Um, I would imagine it would have needed to have a phone because you have to be able to call your lawyer. So well, I can tell you it didn't. So and these people driven out there, they were already told they weren't charged and they weren't being charged. They were being released, but they were driven and forced outside of Ottawa or in the outer skirts and dropped off in the snow. Now, are you aware this happened? Yes or no? No, I'm not aware, and it wasn't outside of Ottawa. It was still within the geographical boundaries of the city of Ottawa. 
oh, well, it's in the geographical boundaries of the city. So that that's fake news. Yeah, well, you know, like, yeah, three inches within the city limits. We dump you in a patch of snow and take your phone and all of that. And well, Bob's your uncle. Everything's supposed to be fine. Uh, that letter that I referenced a moment ago, I want to read a bit of here because it's from the co-lead counsel, Shantona Chowdhury, for the Public Order Emergency Commission, she writes, The information gathered by Commission Counsel in the course of the investigation made clear that Premier Ford and Minister Jones would have evidence, particularly within their knowledge, that would be relevant to the Commission's mandate. On September 19th, 2022, Commission Council requested an interview with them. This request was refused. Commission Council renewed this request multiple times. All requests were refused. Commission Council then requested that Premier Ford and Minister Jones agree to testify before the Commission voluntarily. As of last week, the invitation to attend to testify before the Commission has been declined for the moment. It is our hope that it was our hope that Premier Ford and Minister Jones would agree to appear before the Commission voluntarily. However, given that the repeated invitations were all declined, the Commission has issued summons this day to Premier Ford and Minister Jones pursuant to Section 4 of the Inquiries Act. The Commission thanks you for your request and your continued participation in this inquiry. So when Doug Ford said last week that no one had asked him, that was fundamentally untrue. The Commission says on September 19th they first asked him and have repeated and renewed that request multiple times. So I go back to what is it that Doug Ford is so afraid of in appearing before this commission? And I'm so challenged by how people are looking at this and coming out with the conclusion that the Emergencies Act was justified. Police incompetence, government incompetence, bureaucratic incompetence, and jockeying for position between levels of government does not constitute in the least a national emergency. And a lot of the narratives, even that were put up to support this idea of violence, have shattered. For example, there was a rumor, and I think it was reported in media early on, of some threat against Rideau Hall. Well, Interim Chief Steve Bell said that didn't actually happen. Somebody sent um, information to the former chief directly. Uh, somebody wrote, I lay awake tonight as I read Twitter posts from the extreme right vowing attacks on Rideau Hall this weekend. Some are calling for action akin to the happenings in Washington on Capitol Hill. I understand the right to peaceful protest, but I'm writing as a very concerned citizen as we're not hearing any reassurances from the city of policing uh, regarding the safety of residents surrounding these vulnerable and targeted spots. There was national security representatives, including CSIS uh, and the RCMP, in our joint intelligence group. So again, this was information that was taken in, assessed, evaluated, uh, as put towards our threat assessment, and, and ultimately this didn't bore, bear out to be to be accurate, there was no threats made against Rideau Hall. Weird. So that might have just been some of that misinformation we need to get to the bottom of. No threats against Rideau Hall. Just like there was no attempted arson by anyone connected to the convoy. Just like police exonerated convoy participants from uh, the issue that happened at the Cenotaph early on with a woman dancing and so on. But it's that old line about how a lie makes its way around the world. I don't know what the original quote was, however many times. Well, the truth is still putting its pants on. I am not going to subject you to eight hours of Steve 
Steve Bell. Because if you wanted eight hours of Steve Bell, you could have watched today's hearings before the Public Order Emergency Commission. But what I am going to talk about right now is the importance of language. Now, police officers, and I have some in my family, are normally very precise about language. Because in law, words mean things and words are defined in very particular ways. So... Steve Bell was talking about violence, the violence that people in the convoy world that were uh, living in Ottawa, not part of the convoy, violence they were being subjected to. And again, we've heard reports from OPP intelligence that violence wasn't actually taking place. We didn't see from Ottawa police charges of violence by and large. So what is, what, where is this violence coming from? If you're going to make a drive-by comment like that, what is it you actually mean? Well, turns out Steve Bell has redefined what violence means. So is it fair to say that when you use the phrase violence, you're not actually describing any form of physical assaults, are you? I'm, I'm, well, physical assaults do contribute to what I'm describing. I was specifically describing the violence that our community felt as a result of the culmination of actions that the occupiers engaged in. So the violence that they felt, not actual violence, is that what you're saying? That is correct. Not, not the criminal code definition of violence, but the violence that they felt by having incessant horns blared. Right. And by not... having trucks run 24-7 a day. Right. By having people intimidate them and follow them. And by having people rip masks off their head. By feeling sheltered in their homes. Well, I, I, th leave. Thank you. I understand what you mean. But you're not talking about violence under Section 2 of the CSIS Act, are you? No, I'm not. Thanks. <laughs> the, the, the violence. So he's talking about microaggressions now. The violence you feel. It's like, you know, the violence grows from the heart outward to merge that with Justin Trudeau. The violence you feel. So it's, you could go to police, and I would imagine if you were to call up a 911 in Ottawa and say, you know, I feel murdered. They'd be like, well, hang on a minute. If you, you're, you're making the call, I don't think you were murdered. No, 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 I feel murdered. I, I feel like someone has killed me. Okay. I feel like my car was broken into. Was your car broken into? No, no, no. But I feel like I feel just like collectively the world around me has made it feel like that. And then he says, no, no, no. I don't mean violence in the criminal code sense. He certainly didn't mean violence in the section two of the CSIS Act sense. He means the collective feeling of violence. So uh, take from that what you will, but we are just redefining words left, right, and center. I will say good news. He didn't get anyone to have to translate that. He was able to explain what his definition of violence was in England. So take that, Councillor Matthew Fleury. Uh, just going to take a uh, step, uh, sidestep away from the Public Order Emergency Commission here, which we will certainly revisit on the next program this week. And I want to talk a little bit about Alberta politics because it was busy over the weekend when Danielle Smith, Premier Danielle Smith, came out swinging at the United Conservative Party AGM. And at this event, she took a very firm and decisive position to lay out her Sovereignty Act, which she says will be ready by the time she takes her seat after winning a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat. But I want to play this clip, which has gotten like hundreds of thousands of views online, even from other parts of the world, who I don't even know if they know what an Alberta is or a Sovereignty Act is, but are nonetheless inspired by this message against the Ottawa elites. There can be no doubt that the current NDP Liberal Alliance is just the latest in a long line of Ottawa governments 
that have frustrated the legitimate aspirations of hardworking Albertans. That stops now. When Ottawa announces policies and laws that attack our economy or violate the rights of our people, or when Ottawa seeks to take control of our sovereign areas of provincial jurisdiction, our UCP government will not enforce those laws and policies in this province, period. I will never, ever apologize for standing up for the people of Alberta and the province that I serve. So, we will pass the Sovereignty Act. Work has already begun on crafting it. We worked on it earlier this week at the caucus retreat. We still have further work to do, but I've asked for it to be ready by the time I take my seat in the legislature. We will then introduce it, and we will pass it, and we will use it to push Ottawa back into its own lane every single time that they step out of line and intrude on our constitutional rights. Alberta will no longer ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. Preach it, Premier, preach it. And I will say on that that one of like the most bizarre uh, laudings of Danielle Smith, if I can use that word, was from comedian Rob Schneider, who like retweeted my tweet of that video and talked about how Danielle Smith is a real leader. And I was just imagining Rob Schneider in a bunch of his movies just going like, you know, Danielle Smith, you can do it. That was that was Rob Schneider to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith over the weekend. And it didn't stop there. She did a press conference after after and said something that I'm not sure any politician has ever said when asked by a rebel news journalist when she would apologize to the unvaccinated for the discrimination they faced at the hands of Alberta's government. Hi, Ms. Smith. Alice from Rebel News. During your campaign, you said that not only would you issue an apology to those prosecuted during COVID restrictions, but you would also grant them amnesty. When can we expect those apologies? Um, I can apologize right now. I'm I'm, I'm deeply sorry for anyone who was inappropriately subjected to um, discrimination as a result of their vaccine status. I'm deeply sorry for any government employee that was fired from their job because of their vaccine status. And I welcome them back if they want to come back. As for the amnesty, I have to get some legal advice on that. Um, and so I've already asked my staff to, um, to, to request that advice so I can see how we would be able to proceed on that. My view has been that these were um, political decisions that were made, and so I think that they could be political decisions to offer a reversal. But I, I do want to get some, some legal advice on that first. Would that also have to do with the timeline for the proposed amnesties? Um, I, I, I would have to see if, you know, if I can, if I can do it, I will do it at the earliest opportunity. So I'm, I'm hoping within the, next, within the next week I'll get that legal advice. Thank you. Thank you. So that was a clip courtesy of our friends over at Rebel News. On the spot says, yes, I am going to issue, as Premier of Alberta, an apology 
to the unvaccinated for what they have suffered. And, and again, that was a very clear position that she took. And I think it was a very important one. And I think there's a reason that has done as well globally so well online. Now, obviously, she's not after Rob Schneider's votes, unless Rob Schneider has some property in Grand Prairie I don't know about. But she is after the votes of ordinary Albertans that were put in an incredibly difficult situation by their government, which was so far unflinching in defending these mandates, even when they had previously said they would never, ever happen. And uh, Danielle Smith also said that despite that comment that the Calgary Herald reported on from her new health minister, Jason Copping, mandates and restrictions are not coming back for COVID. We are moving beyond that. And I think that is a very clear message that Albertans needed to hear. So I hope you'll forgive the little dalliance away from the Public Order Emergency Commission, but it was too big to not talk about. And I think this is what we'll do. We'll spend most of the shows dealing with the Public Order Emergency Commission. And then as other things come up that uh, tie in, or maybe they don't tie in, we'll bring them in and we'll try to do a well-rounded show for you. But truly, I want to just say thank you to all of you who have been supporters of me, supporters of True North, not just uh, throughout the last few weeks and months, but throughout the Freedom Convoy throughout the last federal elections, whether you joined us four years ago or you joined us four minutes ago in the middle of this show, I thank you so much for it. Uh, please do, if you want to see more of this, head on over to donate.tnc.news and you can make a, a one-time donation, you can sign up for a recurring donation, and you can keep the lights on, which is sometimes in this studio literal, not figurative. If the lights go out midway through, I'm immediately pivoting to a fundraising pitch. But uh, these ones we just got, so I think we're good for a few months anyway. Anyway, uh, but to all of you, have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you on Wednesday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.